Snowmageddon 2022. We probably have a mixture of in-person and online this morning, and that is surely the case. So I guess I'll say thanks for bringing the church into this building and onto the digital platform, however you're engaging this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I get the privilege most weeks of unpacking the scriptures as we come together in this place, and, and this morning is no different. If you're if you're new to our church, uh, last week marked the beginning of, of a new chapter in our slow but steady journey through Luke's gospel account. We've been at Luke's gospel account for over a year now. We're going to continue to work through this book of the Bible all the way up through roughly around the end of the summer. Last week, we stepped back into the pages of this great book of the Bible after taking a break for the season of Advent. The book of Luke filled with captivating story after captivating story together, telling the, the one story of redemption in Jesus Christ. That's where this story is headed. Not only that we might have certainty regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, believing on him, repenting of our sin and trusting in him for forgiveness, yes and amen to that, but two, that we might leave our nets, so to speak, and follow him, giving our lives to heaven's king in glad submission, which is what it means to be a disciple. As we've talked about through our study of this book of the Bible from the very beginning, Jesus is either infinitely valuable, worth giving up everything to gain, or he's not. There is no third option, as Luke has shown us numerous times over. A reality that Luke is going to continue to bring us face to face with as we continue with Jesus on this journey to Jerusalem, a journey that that as many of us know, would radically transform Jesus's closest disciples as they would go on to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, most of them. And it's a journey that could very well radically transform our own lives, and perhaps it already has for some of you who have been a part of this series with us as we continue to sit at the feet of Jesus and, and journey with him down the Calvary Road. And so it's with that framing in mind that I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 13, I'm certain that you just got really jazzed with the title of this sermon, Unless You Repent, Let's Go, right? Let's get after it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can track on the screen behind me with this morning's passage, as well as any other scripture references that we're going to dive into, commentary quotes, etc. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get into a really fascinating passage of scripture together. Heavenly Father, First and foremost, give you praise in acknowledging your sovereignty over all things, including the weather, including trees that stood the test of last night's winds and those that fell. We acknowledge your mercy, your grace this morning, your patience and long-suffering, your holiness and your justice, so many attributes that we see in this morning's passage. And I want to begin by just proclaiming them as we come together in prayer. Jesus, praise you for living the life that we could never live as we see in Luke's gospel account in story after story, perfect, sinless obedience on behalf of lost sinners. Praise you where this story is heading, to Golgotha, to a cross, to Mount Calvary where you would die on behalf of lost sinners to the empty tomb that would follow three days later where you would rise triumphant over Satan, sin, and death, now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You are worthy of our praise. This is yet again the Lord's day, and you are Lord. And so we come together to praise you in many ways through our song, but right now as we open the scriptures together. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see 
and our ears to hear God's word this morning. Open our hearts to receive it. Transform us that we might leave this place different than we came. And that ultimately, you would receive the glory in it all and the joy would be ours, knowing that, that all things happen for the good of those who are united to Christ by faith. So we, your people, come before you this morning ready to receive what you have for us through your word. Would you save lost sinners as well as we sit with the wonder of the gospel yet again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So at this point in Luke's gospel account, as I mentioned last week, Jesus has just directed his gaze toward Jerusalem, the city in which the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah would be fulfilled. Everything up to this point in Luke's gospel account, helping us to see just how desperate we are for Jesus to make that journey down the Calvary Road. Jerusalem now the goal, the focal point of where this story's headed. As you pick up this morning's passage, we find ourselves uh, in the midst of, of some of the heaviest teachings and warnings of Jesus in all of Luke's gospel account, which is why the sermon would be entitled Ready or Not last week and Unless You Repent this week. Last week, bringing us face to face with Jesus' call to stay dressed for action like servants waiting for the master to come home from a, the wedding feast as Jesus promises eternal blessing for those who are ready, expectantly waiting in hopeful anticipation for his return, the second advent, while promising judgment for those who, who prize this life more than the one to come, who live as though this life and this world is all there is, proving themselves to be hypocrites in the end, as would be true of Judas. Going back to last week, the stakes are high. The red-letter words of Jesus that make up this part of Luke's gospel account, carrying with them the weightiness of eternity. And with those words of sobering urgency, the declarative hope of the gospel as Jesus speaks again last week of a, a baptism that awaits him, a baptism of fire, chapter 12, verse 50. The fire of God's judgment, the pouring out of God's wrath upon Jesus in the place of sinners. That Jesus came into the world to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that you and I, covenant-breaking sinners, might be spared of that cup. The question is, will we or have we repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation that we might be on the right side of the judgment when the master returns. As Jesus himself says, chapter 12, verse 51, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus, as Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 8, the, stumbling, the stone of stumbling over whom many will fall, get tripped up over. People were divided over what to do with Jesus in his day, and people are divided over what to do with Jesus to this very day. As Jesus reveals the thoughts from many hearts, going all the way back to chapter 2, verse 35, as light exposes darkness, which again means that there's no position of neutrality when it comes to Jesus. He's either the sun who melts the ice or hardens the clay. There is no third option. We're either for Jesus or against him. These are, these are the kind of things that Jesus has been teaching as we pick up the story in chapter 13 with these words. Verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
Apparently, a group of Galileans had recently traveled to Jerusalem, presumably around the time of Passover, because that was the only time of the year that, that lay people were involved in animal sacrifices. And that group of Galileans, we're told, was slaughtered on the authority of an execution order by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Their blood mingling in the courtyard of the temple, just get that imagery in your mind, with the blood of the very sacrifices they had been offering to God. That's a story that undoubtedly would have made front page news, right? Like the slaughtering of Christians in an Easter Sunday gathering. It's a story that undoubtedly fits with what we know about Pontius Pilate. I mean, we don't, we don't even need the scriptures to know that Pilate was the thorn in the flesh of the Jewish people under his watch. The Jewish historian Josephus includes several examples of, in his writings, things like attempting to bring pagan Roman symbols into Jerusalem, the city of God. Things like disregarding Jewish customs and practices. Things like taking money from the temple to build an aqueduct and then killing those who responded in anger. These are just a few examples of what we have codified in, in writing in the, the history books of the Jewish people around Jesus' time. Coming back to this morning's passage, a, a group of people in close proximity to Jesus shared with him the news of the slaughtering of these Galilean worshipers, and Jesus, Jesus knows what their motivations are. For, for some, perhaps a, a feeling sense of self-justification without need for personal repentance in their own estimation, as evidenced by the lack of suffering and tragedy in their own lives, unlike the Galileans whose lives had been tragically ended. For others, the question of why a good God would allow such a tragic thing to happen, the problem of evil, theodicy, especially to his chosen people, worshipers massacred in the midst of their religious ritual. What do you do with that? Luke goes on to tell us in verse 2, and he, Jesus, answered them, do you, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right, not... Not one tragedy, but two had recently taken place in the city of Jerusalem. One premeditated, the other a tragedy that no one could have foreseen. The fall of the Tower of Siloam. According to many scholars, having fallen in the midst of the construction of an aqueduct in an effort to improve the city's water supply. These two tragedies bringing about the age-old question for some, where was God? How could he allow such tragic events to happen, especially to his chosen people in his chosen city? Surely, it must be that these Galileans and passersby were harboring hidden sin, a rap sheet far worse than those around them that no one else could perhaps see, but God could. It wasn't at all uncommon in Jesus' day for people to associate tragedy with a sort of one-for-one -one punishment for personal sin or a lack of faith. It's a popular view that's just as prevalent now as it was then. The idea that suffering is, is always the result of a specific sin or sins. Like the man born blind in John chapter 9, 
whom Jesus' disciples presumed had, had sinned, either he or his parents, somebody, were like Job's friends. And he used the term friends loosely there who assumed unrighteousness on Job's part that that he would incur such tragic suffering and loss. And yet the scriptures are clear that Job's afflictions came not because he was living unrighteously, but because he was living righteously. A man blameless and upright, Job chapter one, verse one, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's how the story starts. Jesus isn't denying that sometimes specific sins bring about specific suffering as it surely can and does. Take Jonah, for example, who in running from God brought a self-inflicted storm into his life. However, Jesus is denying that all suffering is owing to the sins of the sufferer. I mean, make no mistake about it, on a, on a meta-narrative, grand-scale level, Suffering and death came into this world because of sin. Most of us know that in this place. Look no further than Genesis 3, perhaps Romans 8, creation groaning, we groaning for the redemption of our bodies. But on a personal level, it's not always quite so formulaic. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage, says, Jesus' questioners were correct in assuming that there is a connection between moral evil and physical suffering. But, he says, Jesus took that opportunity to remind them that we cannot leap to the conclusion that all people suffer in direct proportion to their degree of sin. Sometimes the wicked prosper, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Sometimes the righteous suffer, again, Job chapter 1, verse 1. But in Jesus' estimation, it's dangerous to always and forever associate tragedy with a sort of one-for-one punishment for personal sin or lack of faith. It opens the door for a smugness, a feeling sense of moral superiority for those who know little to nothing of tragedy in their lives. And with that, a shocking response on Jesus' part to the problem of suffering and evil Notice that he calls those within earshot to repent lest they end up likewise perishing. Which is not to say that Jesus has in mind the same fate for those who fail to repent as what happened to those Galilean worshipers and those crushed under the fallen tower of Siloam. Rather, Jesus is talking about the greater tragedy here, the tragedy of being crushed under the weight of God's judgment, revealing And perhaps shockingly to many, that the appropriate question is not, why did those people die? But rather, why am I not dead along with them? The the question is not, why do bad things happen to good people? Rather, the question is, why do good things happen to rebellious sinners? And of course, the answer is that God is patient. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the words of one commentator, we should not be amazed by the justice of God, but we should surely be amazed by the grace of God. That's why we sing not amazing justice, but amazing grace. It's a grace that, that not only has the power to change our perspective as we acknowledge that we've been rescued from the crushing tower of God's judgment in Christ, but two, a grace that invites, invites lost sinners to repent while there's still time. 
It's what Jesus is doing here. As he takes the fate of the Galileans and those having experienced tragedy in Siloam and leverages those tragedies into a sober and urgent call to repentance for those within earshot. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 6, in telling a parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, verse eight, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. It's a fascinating parable that highlights two things at once. Namely, one, God's expectation regarding repentance because he's holy. And two, his patience in punishing sin because he's merciful. Through the same kind of agrarian imagery that, that we've seen before in Luke's gospel account, right? Jesus taught back in chapter six, every tree is known by its fruit, that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And with that, the parable of the sower back in chapter eight, the cursed soil of faithlessness in stark contrast with the fruit-yielding soil of faith. In one sense, Jesus' words here are an indictment on Israel and her leaders. And with that, a call to repentance while there's still time. There, there's some of that rebellion on the Jewish people's part that would open up the door for the Gentiles to be grafted in. All of that is taking place as we read Luke's gospel account. That's unfolding for sure. And yet... The word picture here is broad enough to speak to every one of us this morning, like the vine branch imagery in John chapter 15. Very familiar passage of scripture. John chapter 15, verse five and verse six. I'm the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of love produced as we abide in Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Fruit of joy produced as we abide in Christ, whose joy becomes our joy. The fruit of peace produced as we abide in Christ, who's, who made peace by the blood of his cross. And on and on, we could keep going down that Galatians 5 list. I would ask this morning, is Christ in you? Going back to last week as well, is there fruit bearing evidence of an abiding relationship with the vine? Is the fig tree alive? Human race has an incredible capacity for self-delusion. We've talked about this before. Nowhere more perfectly demonstrated than the lives of thousands of evangelicals who are not born again. D.A. Carson, one of the most sobering quotes that I've come across in recent history. He says, It is true that men are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance. 
church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. He says, in the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. That man is justified by God through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We say that all the time around here. Make no mistake about it. Yes and amen. And yet, as Martin Luther once said, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Meaning that a true root of faith, it, it will reveal itself in the fruit of repentance and good works in some capacity. I love how, how Jesus brings the parable of the fig tree to a close as he shows us something of God's slowness to anger and patience with lost sinners, which is, it's not to say that, that his patience as such will continue always and forever, but rather that in God's kindness, the tower hasn't fallen yet. So that if you're not a Christian, I would say today is the day to repent of your sins, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. The one whose blood, unlike the Galileans, picture this, was not mingled with sacrifices, but rather he who through the shedding of his own blood became our sacrifice for sin crushed under the towering weight of God's judgment on our behalf that you and I might be delivered from that very judgment. And if you are a Christian, this morning's passage is one that yet again has the, the power to, to change our perspective as we consider the abounding mercy and grace that God has bestowed upon us. Wednesday morning, I dropped our kids off at school as I do most days, and I pulled back into the, the driveway, and usually I'll use that time to read the paper, so to speak, digitally on my phone as I sit with a hot cup of coffee. You know, the heater's just warmed up in the car. Uh, the, the ride is short. I want to enjoy the heat that is slowly warmed up for a little bit. And this particular morning, I was just, I was having a rough go at it. Uh, I was not sensing God's presence. God felt very distant to me. I was sad. I woke up to a day that I honestly didn't want to step into. And uh, as silly as this might sound, it feels silly to say it. Uh, the, the lyrics of the chorus of Cindy Lauper's Time After Time hit me. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Time after time. If you fall, I will catch you. I'll be waiting. Time after time. And I just thought, Lord, I, I feel lost this morning. So I'm going to look, and I'm going to see if I can find you. And I looked out the driver's side window, and there's a, a tree in our front yard, and all of its leaves had fallen. And if I can be honest, winter is not one of my favorite months, but I was reminded as I looked at that tree, or favorite seasons, I should say, I was reminded as I looked at that tree that God gave seasons to begin with. He gave me the ones I love, the ones that frustrate me. He gave the changing of 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 the tide, so to speak, a few times a year so that we could have these different experiences. And then because there were no leaves, I could see our, our neighbor's house to the left, Steve and Mary, some of the best neighbors in the world. You, you oftentimes don't choose your neighbors. You choose your house and hope for the best. 
with respect to your neighbors, right? And yet these are neighbors that my wife and I have talked about. It would be really difficult for us to consider relocating to a different home because we'd lose Steve and Mary next door. And then I kind of pan back across looking through the, the front windshield of the car and I saw these two little windows above the garage and on the other side of those windows are the two beds of our two little girls and, and I was reminded that God's given us a place of refuge, a place to lay our heads, a place of safety. That God's given me those two little girls as, as a, a gift of his kindness, mercy, and grace. And then I, I panned down to our, our tiny little front porch, our covered front porch, and I was reminded of the many opportunities we had to, to sit with people when, when we weren't really sure of what to do about COVID and we still wanted to socialize and people seemed to be okay with outdoors when they weren't okay with indoors and and the many times that we sat out on that front porch and and connected with people and even did premarital counseling uh, a few times on that very porch and it was God's kindness and and gift to us and then I looked down and and I, I saw the cup of coffee in my hand and I lifted it up and I took a sip and I don't mean this uh, to be a, a shot to any who have lost their sense of taste and smell as of later or dealing with that right now, but I could taste my coffee and my heart was happy and I was immediately taken to this morning's passage and I thought to myself, I should be crushed under the tower right now. Right now. I mean, even this morning I woke up and I thought, I should have been crushed by a tree or trees last night in the midst of a a heavy wind advisory, and I wasn't. As, As one of the old sages of our church planting network, Ray Ortland Jr., says often, I should be in hell right now. Holy smokes at the grace and mercy and kindness of God. And my heart was full, and I went into the house, and I unpacked that with my wife, and I told her, I, I sensed after that, as I have about a half dozen times, the Lord uh, impressing upon me, you have to tell everyone else about that on Sunday. Um, And so here it is, I'm sharing that with you. And if I could just be even more honest than that, we should be amazed by the justice, or we should not be amazed by the justice of God. We should surely be amazed by his mercy and grace. Yes and amen to that. But not just on occasion, but, but as a regular rhythm of what it means to live the Christian life. Because honestly, that was Wednesday. Friday morning, I had already forgotten. And, and, and same thing this morning. I forgot as we were trying to get our kids ready to be here. And the weather was awful. And we were, and we were trying to uh, square away some other action items on our task list that are abnormal for us on Sunday mornings. And it even James and I have been trying to figure out, like, what do we do about the service this morning in, in light of the weather, if anything? And it was just a, it was a stressful, crazy last 12 hours, and I forgot. Because that's, that's what we're prone to do, right? It's why we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to forget that I should be crushed, not just under a, a tower of rubble, but the tower of God's judgment. Anything other than Me in hell right now is a wonder. It's a miracle. It's a grace. It's a mercy. And so this is it. And this will be the benediction a few minutes from now. My prayer is that we would never cease to not only keep it at the forefront of our thinking, but to stand amazed at the patience, mercy, and grace of God in our lives. And that the outworking of that 
would be that we would bear fruit in keeping repentance as we bask in the wonder of God's patience, as we bask in the wonder of God's mercy, as we bask in the wonder of God's grace. You might not need this sermon today because things might be going swimmingly for you. Perhaps maybe a, a, a humbling being brought out of the smugness and a reminder of it all. But you might need it today. And tomorrow the tables might flip between any one of us. And so I, I pray that, that this this passage wouldn't be lost on you nor on me and that we would just continually come back to the the wonder of God's mercy, grace, and kindness in Jesus Christ.